0: to backlisted the podcast that gives new life to old books today you find us bathed in the warm late summer sunshine at the Lama tree Gardens in dorset in wiltshire um <laughs> in dorset uh, <laughs> at the end of the road festival the very excellent end of the road festival which is amazing because the journey we had to get here was ter- was horrific snow ice tramping for thousands of miles across empty farmland with only crows and sheep for company. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the website that brings readers and writers together. And I'm Andy Miller, (laughs) author of the Year of Reading Dangerously. Our guest
1: today, get ready to clap again, is Luke Turner. Thank you. Hello, hello, Luke. Hello. Luke is the author of the acclaimed memoir, Out of the Woods, which was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize and longlisted for the Polari Prize for first book by an LGBT writer. Luke has also been selected by Val McDermott as one of the 10 most important LGBT writers for a British council and national centre for writing initiative. In 2019, he's been co-curating a programme of arts events celebrating the landscape and people of Epping Forest as part of Walton Forest's stint as the first London Borough of Culture, Luke's co-founder and editor of The Quietus, and writes for a variety of publications. And he is an enigma, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. because he likes football, but he doesn't like The Clash. Oh, God. <laughs>
2: <Hooray>! <laughs> Not The Clash argument again. Yeah, oh, dear. That's a
0: Venn diagram.
2: Don't ever be rude about The Clash on social media. It no, doesn't go very well.
0: Clash fans
1: are like little children who've had a toy <laughs> taken away. If you go, oh, I don't really like The Clash, then, no, oh, I love them, I love them. Oh, so you everyone in here loves The Clash, don't they? You can feel You can
0: feel the waves of hostility. Not, not everyone, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you, book, if
1: you like a podcast with a mournful German
0: accent yes. involved, you've come to the right place. The book that we're here, or that Luca has chosen for us to talk about this morning, as we've already said, is Werner Herzog's of walking in ice. This was an account of his journey on foot from Munich to Paris in December 1974, a particularly bitter winter, as you'll discover. He went to visit Lottie Eisner, the doyen of the German film industry, who he had heard was dying and walked in order uh, in the grand Herzogian manner to save her life. It was published first in German in 1978, and then the English translation by Alan Greenberg, which is the one we're reading from, was published by Jonathan Cape, in 1980,
1: but before we get to that, on Batlist, we tend to ask a question uh, of one another at the beginning of the show. I'll go first this time, John. What have you been reading this week? I have been reading a
0: small, uh, but I mean, deceptively small book called "Time Lived Without Its Flow" by Denise Riley. It's published, I think, next week by Picador. Denise Riley is better known as a poet. Uh, she's particularly well known for a a really, really astonishing collection called Say Something Back about the sudden death, unexpected death of a son. This book is connected to that collection, I guess, because it's a, as well as being a poet, she's also a philosopher. And this is a, it's always, when you say a philosophical investigation into death, I can feel the audience dripping away. Don't, bear with me. It is so exquisitely, precisely written, so lacking in uh, self-pity but also completely looks at death straight in the face and tries to understand the specific thing that happened to her. If I read you the opening paragraph, it will give you, in a way, what the, what the book is about, which she says, I'll not be writing about death, but about an altered condition of life. The experience that not only preoccupied, but occupied me was of living in suddenly arrested time, that acute sensation of being cut off from any temporal flow that can grip you after the sudden death of your child, and a child, it seems, of any age. And she takes it from there and she unpacks, basically the first kind of two-thirds of the book on notes that she wrote up to, I think, up to about sort of six or seven years after the, the death of her son. And then the final section is her trying to make sense by looking at the work of other writers, from philosophers, to uh, poets like Wordsworth and Emily Dickinson to try and make sense of what she went through. It is, it, it's totally unforgettable. I mean, I, I've, I've now read it three times. It's its short, but it's so densely packed and makes you think about death in such a different and ultimately, I think, liberating way. It's its uh, one of the things she talks about is the second morning, which is when you realise that you, you have to leave this temporal state of suspended animation and go back into your normal life. It feels like a second a second bereavement because you're leaving that that space where you somehow there was still a presence with the dead person was still there you have to leave again but it's got a lovely, very very uh, beautifully written introduction by Max Porter, who of course his first book a grief is the thing with feathers was also on this theme but I'll read you one short little bit from towards the end of this is several years after the death towards the end of her notes about the book before she gets onto the the essay at the end and gives you a flavour. But I, I, I don't think I've read anything that's made me think more in many, very many years. It's, it's, it's As I say, it's called Time Live Without Its Flow, uh, Denise Riley, published on the 19th September by Picador. Time is the person. You're soaked through with it. This enormous lurch into arrested time isn't some philosophical brooding about life's fragility. It's not the same I who lives in her altered sense of no time but a reshaped person, and I don't know how she'll turn out. If writing had once been a modest work of shaping and correcting, now all your small mastery has been smashed by the fact of your child's death. That you can't edit. You find yourself noting this, but without ever needing or wanting to have recourse to words like sorrow, grief, mourning, as if all those are too familiar, too sepia, and almost decorative, blandly containing. You entertain no reflections either, that a life will live its reverberations hanging in the air like a passage of music, nothing so sweetly melancholic. Instead, you're living in this instant, this thinnest imaginable sliver of being, turns out to be hard-edged. Side views are occluded without any softening penumbra. Your sight is pared down like tunnel vision, Yet to your narrowed focus, the dead of this entire city are present all at once, elbowing in the streets. Silhouettes stream everywhere. Horses, carriages, cars. Traffic goes smash right through you wherever you cross a road. Grey ribbons of painless collisions. But these aren't misty or violet-tinted. Are nothing to do with mourning as you might once have fancied it. This is sharp and harshly clear. Your surrounding fluid of intuitive time had abruptly drained away. Now you live in an unshaded clarity of dry air. It's translucent simplicity boys you up.
1: Thank you. Uh, Denise Riley is a poet who is for those in the know, I think, is considered very important. Yeah. And I, I read um, Rebecca Thomas's book of poetry, Witch, earlier in the year, and at the back, she talks about Denise Riley's influence on her career. I think many poets feel the same way. But I agree with you. First of all, say something back. The last book of poetry is tremendous. But this is, I mean, I yeah. think many, many people will have read this a year from now, this new book.
0: they saying louder at the back.
1: But louder.
0: Yeah. yeah. Interference of music. Well, those wretched musicians have started yeah. going. Out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the thing is, if I declaim. Despise if, music. <laughs> if I declaim too loud, people listening at home
0: will wonder why I'm talking <laughs> like this clearly so you can hear me project. Anyway, Denise Riley, Andy, what have you been reading? Uh,
1: okay, I've been reading a book, the new book, which is published in a couple of days' time by the comedian Stuart Lee. It's called March of the Lemmings, Brexit in Print and Performance, 2016 to 2019. And this is Stuart Lee's fifth book, and full disclosure, I edited this book. (laughs) (laughs) As I did the previous four. And I normally wouldn't talk about a book I've edited on Backlisted, But I have a very specific reason for wanting to do so with Stuart Lee's new book, which I'll come on to in a minute. The thing about Stuart's books is that they are, unlike many comedians' books, thought through from the ground up. So they tend not to just be collections of things. March of the Lemmings contains uh, his columns from the Observer newspaper that he's been writing for the last three years. And the full transcript of his show, Content Provider, and it also contains introductory essays for all of those things, and footnotes, which sometimes run for pages at a time. (laughs) And uh, there is in this book, we worked out his longest ever footnote, a three and a half page exegesis on the subject of why people didn't understand one line in Content Provider and why they were wrong and he was right, which sort, of, which sort of underpins a lot of Stuart's work. So one of the things that's in this book, as I say, are columns from the Observer newspaper, and uh, he's included lots of the reader comments that have subsequently appeared online. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the beginning of one of the pieces and then a few of the comments. This is from a column which first appeared on March 3rd this year, March 3rd, 2019, under the title, Why Did the BBC Let Andrew Neil Combust? And it starts thus. This week, supposedly unprecedented spring wildfires raged across dry, bushy and exposed areas. On Monday, having dealt with serious incidents at Saddleworth Moor and Hundred Acre Wood, Teams of specialised firefighters also attended the small pieces of shredded wheat that live on top of Andrew Neil's head. (laughs) Footnote. It it was the hottest February on record. Idiots thought it was brilliant and dry stuff was catching fire. (laughs) I thought, what else looks dry? Oh, yeah, Andrew Neil's hair. He goes on, he says, Dozens of grateful weevils were saved from certain death in the breakfast bisque Inferno by the firefighters and rehoused in temporary accommodation in the nearby clumps of Andrew Neil's ear hair, <laughs> while his nostrils became emergency treatment centres for scorched pests. Right, it goes on, right? And that's clearly in a comic mode, right? many of you, Many, though not all of you, seem to have understood that. Here are some of the below-the-line comments that appeared the day that article appeared online. Typical biased Guardian article... (laughs) Typical biased Guardian article and Jerry unfanryle and certainly not funny, Patrick R.D. The article above by Andrew Lee tries too hard. It lacks clarity, purpose, and it fails to inform... (laughs) Shit piss wank. Is that the best you can do? My six-year-old can employ more description than that without having to resort to that kind of pure R language. (laughs) We used to think The Guardian a serious newspaper. Now it publishes garbage like this. At least we never thought Stuart Lee, who he, Ed, a comic. And that's from Andrew Neil, Twitter. (laughs) At Oxford with Cameron, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) There is a reason why nobody's heard of Stuart Lee, and that load of tripe is probably it. And he uses of instead of have. (laughs) (laughs) So I could read many, many more. On and on and on it goes. The reason I wanted to talk about this book is that I fear that this book will not get the coverage that it deserves because it's by a comedian, and that comedian is Stuart Lee. So first of all, the media will look at the book and think, well, it's a comedian's book." book, even though it's nothing like one of those books. And second of all, newspapers, because certain of the columns have appeared in a rival newspaper, won't cover it, right? So I think the book will come out, and it will sell to people who like Stuart Lee, and that's great but it deserves a wider audience. And the reason it deserves a wider audience is because being trapped in a book with all those below-the-line voices raging repeatedly at you, the reader, about whatever they want, regardless of its politics or grammar or the fact they do like Stuart Lee or the fact they don't like Stuart Lee or the fact they've never heard of Stuart Lee or they're a Russian bot or they want to talk about Brexit and they're angry or they don't want to talk about Brexit and they're even angrier. That's what it's been like living in this country for the last three years. And that's why this is a fantastic book. There isn't a better book, with the possible exception of Ali Smith's seasonal quartet, Which has captured what it's like living in a country having a nervous breakdown, like Stuart Lee's new book, March of the Lemmings, does. So if you think you know what Stuart's about, or if you think this would be only a comedian's book, or if you hate Stuart Lee, and if you are a Russian bot who has been sent here to destabilize me (laughs) while I talk, (laughs) you should still read this book. Me and
2: my friend have a conceptual band called Comment Section, all capitals, in which we would play harsh electronic noise and read the comments from The Guardian. So this looks like really good material for for the band. We'll sell it on the merch stall if you like. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. I mean, Herzog was, uh, thanks to the uh, wonderful twin box sets you used to be able to get for about 20 quid in FOP, uh, and they don't seem to have done them anymore because now there's an expensive, fancy BFI edition. But I remember wanting to what, get something to watch. And I was like, Herzog, heard of him. I'll buy these box sets. And they and all of those films just blew my mind. The Kinski uh, collaborations and so on. The book I bought um, just randomly. I saw it when this uh, edition came out. And I thought, oh, Herzog wrote a book. It's nice and short, isn't it? I'll buy that. And it was at a time when I was starting to think about writing about place and nature and things like that. And I was finding a lot of the kind of nature writing TM books frustrating. You know, I I was in Stoke Newington library, a bookshop rather one day and I looked up and there was the nature writing shelf and it was just like flocks of twee woodcut birds and flowers. And I was just like, "I, I can't, I don't want to do a book like this. And I, and this book, it's, I find it interesting my two favourite nature writers, for want of a better term, are Werner Herzog and Derek Jarman. And, you know, in many ways, I'd, I'd have talked about modern, modern nature to talk about, but I've talked a lot about it in the out-of-the-woods kind of interviews and so on. Um, and this, you can read this book it's pretty much in one go, and it's, it's just this... Like his films, you get the sense of the landscape, you get the sense that he's possibly... This walk is not a truthful narrative... And he, it's very vividly painted. It's, it's psychedelic in some ways. If, if you can have cold psychedelia of walking in ice is, is it. And I, I just love it. It's entertaining as well. It's a fantastic book.
0: Um, he said it was more dear to him. It's an interesting story. There are, t- there are a couple of origin stories. One story is that he was actually going to walk to... You can't tell that story, can I? No, I'm going to stop
1: you. Nick, could you play clip number three? Because the author is going to set the book up for us. Yeah,
3: Lotte Eisner, again, back to her. She must have been about 80 when a friend of mine called from Paris, come quickly, she's dying. She had uh, suffered a massive stroke. And for a moment, I didn't know what to do. It was such a deep shock and something surged inside of me and I knew you're not going to fly to Paris, you are going to walk. And I have to... It, it's, it was like a pilgrimage. I just grabbed a duffel bag and, and grabbed some solid shoes, put them on, and I knew I, I, I will walk the shortest, quickest route to Paris, a straight line. I, I took a reading from the compass, and it was the beginning of winter with uh, snowstorms and and hail and ice. And, and I walked for almost four weeks, and I knew I would not allow her to, to die. I would not permit her. And she was so important for me and also for the whole new generation of um, German filmmakers at that time. She gave us legitimacy. She declared us as the the, the real new German culture that was not barbaric like the Nazis. So she was so important for us that I I would not allow her to die. (laughs) And it's strange because while I walked, I, I wrote a little diary and... Sometimes when I stopped, or sometimes even while I was walking, I I wrote and scribbled notes, and I published that uh, as a book later, which is called "Of Walking in the Ice." And I think "Of Walking in the Ice" is better than all my films. Together,
2: yes. I, th- I think that's the really that... interesting thing that he he again and again in interviews, and then this excellent collection of sort of first person interviews, "Guide for the Perplexed." He often says, "I will be more remembered for my writing and my prose." than my films, that my prose is more significant than my filmmaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he, loves, he loves walking. I mean, he, 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 took, he comes back to walking again and again as a sort of a, a metaphor. So many of his characters are, are, are also a, a film walking. He was a great friend of Bruce Chatwin. And he, again, he sort of buys into Chatwin's theory that you know, things went wrong for human beings when we stopped being nomads and became sedentary. So tourism is a sin. And walking is 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 a blessing it's one of his in one of his many manifestos but actually andy this that wasn't what i was going to say so the interruption was that the apocryphal story was that he was in fact had was going on a walk to Cannes to arrange the press screening he was going to walk from munich to Cannes to arrange the press screening of uh, the enigma of Kaspar hauser his his great 1974 film but in fact uh he that he got the news about lottie eisner so there's always with, it's a classic bit of Herzog, he's always turning his own life into sort of mythology. Yeah. Um, he's always looking for the angle. He's, he's just a born storyteller. And he has a, he has a creative relationship with facts. The, the accountant's truth, as he calls them.
1: <laughs> he, he has a theory that what matters is the ecstatic truth, what yeah. he calls the ecstatic truth, which is not necessarily the truth. There's a brilliant film I watched this week at John's suggestion.
0: Cave of Forgotten Dreams. We've each chosen a favorite Herzog film to talk about because they all have some kind of relationship with this book, some sort of morphic resonance. He would like that idea with the book. But the one I chose was a more recent film, 2006, I think. Yeah. Uh, *A Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It ticks all the Herzog boxes. I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. It appears to be completely accessible. I mean, it starts with some fabulous. Mu- the music is music. He's amazing on music. Herzog. There's a f- again one of the stories he tells about his childhood is he was he he had no music for ten years because his one of his teachers asked him to sing in front of the class, and he refused. And there was a battle of wills. And in the end, I learned you know the important lesson to never be beaten down by these bastards. <laughs> So he doesn't sing, but then it means he can't listen to music on any form. And then later on, music is unlocked for him. I can't remember what the, by what particular moment, but it's unlocked for him. And then he educates himself and he chooses the music in his films incredibly carefully. And uh, Eric Reichlinger, the cellist, composed an amazing score. So it starts, as it often does, with amazing music and then a slow pan across a, a frozen vineyard. And then he starts, in his inimitable way, narrating the documentary... And he sets up the biggest The discovery that is made in the caves near here is the greatest discovery in the history of human culture. So you think, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> how are you going to live up to this? And indeed, what, it, what turns out, the second thing is, there has to be difficulty in a, Herzog, a great Herzog film, you know, in filming in the jungle or impossible. Well, this is difficult because it's a cave, and it's the only access to the cave is through a tiny... You can only have three crew carbon dioxide builds up so quickly you can only film for an hour at a time but being Herzog, he's decided he's been persuaded by his his great cinematographer who is called peter reitlinger that he should film it in 3d so that is difficult enough if you're in a (laughs) studio and then he goes into this the cave and it is the most incredible preserved cave chauvet cave and it was discovered in 1994 and it is the most perfectly preserved paleolithic cave paintings that you've seen anywhere. And there's a brilliant scene where he's talking to one of the researchers who's been working on the film who he manages to elicit that he was a circus performer before he was an archaeologist. And then he said one of his favourite things, again, is is this idea that facts are like learning about the... It's like the New York City um, telephone directory. You know all the names and telephone numbers, but you don't know why Jonathan cries himself to sleep at night. And the idea is that you can't work out, we don't know what these paintings mean, but we feel some sort of connection.
1: So I watched all of the film, <laughs> 80 minutes of this incredible nature documentary, the Herzog voiceover. Quite straight in lots of ways. Have you seen it? No, I'm not seeing okay, it. Okay, right. so right, okay, slight spoilers. And then, big spoilers. And but then it, it comes to anything. the end, and I am thinking, this film's 90 minutes, there's 10 minutes still to go. Things come up on screen saying postscript. There's a. Like a seven-minute scene with Herzog filming some mutant, what he calls mutant albino crocodiles (laughs) who live next to a nuclear power station. Which is 20 minutes from the the Caves. caves. And him musing on what they mean. And perhaps we are mutant albino crocodiles ourselves looking back through the vertiginous passage of time... Like the cave paintings, look at us. And there's this incredible long shot of two mutant albino crocodiles staring at one another. End of film. <laughs> pretty- I go and in and say, God, this is the most amazing, inspiring, oh, my God, you know, the ecstatic truth. And then I realised that there are, is, there are no such thing as mutant albino <laughs> crocodiles. <laughs> and he made it all up. Did you know that? Yeah. I didn't even know if you know that he I actually... Did. Posty calling.
0: Um, I have a letter to deliver to a thoughtful young fellow milling
1: about
0: the literature tent, and I think I'm too. Oh, oh hello. <laughs> well, thanks. Sorry,
1: everyone. A lady dressed in a postman's outfit <laughs> has just come on, interrupted a podcast on stage. Right? Yeah, you may well laugh, Posty.
0: <laughs>
1: Pretty good. We're just about to make a brilliant. I, we've got to do that whole fucking Herzog <laughs> anecdote again. <laughs> Right, that took ten minutes to fucking set up. People <laughs> over there are falling asleep as it is. Gee, right, what is it? What's That's the payoff? Look, like, come on. No, let's
0: stay. Let's see what the gag is. Come on. It's a poem, Andy. It's a lovely. Oh, poem. for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's a poem by no one's standards, but I'm. I'm. We'll, maybe for later. All right. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Woo-hoo! Round the <of> applause. <laughs> the point is. I responded to the documentary to the moment of ecstatic truth. Powerfully, the emotional truth of it doesn't really matter if he made it up. What he made up was something that connected into the bigger story that he wanted to tell. And
2: he often does that in the Encounters at the End of the World, the film um, shot in Antarctica. There's the very famous scene with the penguin that's walking off into the great centre of the continent to its certain death and leaving its comrades behind. Uh, and then there's another shot later on of some, some divers and the penguins sort of walk through their camp. And apparently that's just, that was completely made up as well. But you're right, in that, in that untruth, there is... He manages to... He, I think a lot of his films have these kind of moments, often involving animals and things, where he's
1: trying to tell the truth, even though it's completely fraudulent. Um, he also... Nature... We'll talk about nature in Herzog <laughs> in a moment, and animals. Uh, the, the, as you mentioned that, clip about pe- uh, the, the famous shot of the penguins... Uh, Luke. Also, chickens loom large in the work of Werner Herzog. We've got a clip here of uh, Herzog talking about uh, why why he dislikes chickens so much, but why they figure in his films.
3: The enormity of, of their flat brain, the enormity of their stupidity is just overwhelming. You have to do yourself a favour when you're out in the countryside and you see chicken. Try to look a chicken in the eye with great intensity. And the intensity of stupidity that is looking back at you is just amazing. By the way, uh, it's very easy to hypnotize a chicken. Uh, They're very prone to hypnosis. And in one or two films, I've actually shown that.
0: Yeah, he, does. he In fact, in Casper Hauser, he shows you how to hypnotize a chicken. Just because, yeah, he just he said, I am the first person to have noticed this. <laughs> There's an amazing bit um, in,
2: in uh, you know, is that chickens when roasted are acceptable to him. But there was one chicken, one chicken, and uh, Werner loved. And many years ago, I became fascinated by a rooster named Weirdo, who weighed over thirty pounds. His offspring, Ralph, was even bigger. The man who had raised these extremely aggressive animals had been forced to singe off their spurs with a blowtorch. Then I found Frank, a miniature horse, specially bred from 16th century Spanish stock, who stood less than two feet high. I told Frank's owner that I wanted to film Ralph chasing Frank, with the tiniest midget riding him, around the biggest sequoia tree in the world, more than 100 feet in circumference. It would have looked extraordinary because horse and rider together were still smaller than Ralph the Rooster. (laughs) Unfortunately, Frank's owner refused. (laughs) My horse isn't going to show up for that, he said. It will make him look stupid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks. So another thing about Herzog is he doesn't really... Well, I was going to save this one up, but let's just listen to it. He doesn't really do irony. There's a great amount of humour in his work, and we'll listen to Luke read a bit from um, *Of Walking in Ice in a second, which will hopefully demonstrate that. But he doesn't really do irony, and this is Herzog talking about that and um, what happens as a result of that.
3: And someone who does not know... Uh, irony, for example, I, I do understand humor, but I take things literal. For me, a man is a man. I cannot distinguish a gay man from a straight man. I just cannot distinguish. And and I, I saw a filmmaker whom I know since 35 years, uh, John Waters. <laughs> John Waters, just, just two weeks ago or so, John Waters... And I turned to my wife. We talked backstage because we were both uh, introducing uh, or speaking at an event for for the founder of New Line Cinema, who is a friend of both of us. After 35 years of of knowing John Waters, I I turned to my wife and I said to her, I have the feeling this man is gay. (laughs) (laughs) which, Which is in a way wonderful because I took him... I took him as John Waters, and I love the man. I love him dearly, and he's a wonderful... He's the boldest of the bold filmmakers. I wish I had the guts of this man. And, and, and he's, he's very, very dear to my heart. But for me, this is a man, yes. A man is a man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely thing he says, that you learn more about the shape of a town from its outskirts than from its centre. He does choose... Eccentric liminal characters to, to tell stories, but his tolerance, his kind of generosity, his humanity, I think is he gets the reputation. In particularly in this country, I think around Les Blanc's film of the making of Fitzcarraldo, which was controversial, certain some uh, some of the the, the Native Indian uh, population that worked on the film were, were, were allegedly, I think possibly killed, and uh, is part of that. It was difficult, and he, you know, Herzog being Herzog has the sort of and because he's German and because I think he's had a lot of bad press. But in fact, the, the stories that he tells, I think, and his sympathy, he doesn't do any research. And he does these amazing things. He drops these kind of bombs on people. There's an amazing thing at the beginning of Into the Abyss, which is a, a film about uh, uh, two teenagers on death row. And he's talking to a, a priest, a pastor, and you get the usual flannel. And then the, somehow the pastor, mentioned, he plays golf and there's a squirrel. and a, And he said... Tell me something about your encounter with a squirrel. And then the pastor c- tells and then completely breaks down and you get the truth. He's a, he's a, he's a, he is a remarkable, instinctive kind of creator of stories.
1: And that is what he's doing in Of Walking in Ice. Yes. That Of Walking in Ice, those of you who have read it will have realised, it kind of segues in and out of a dream state. He says he doesn't dream when he's asleep, but he dreams... One of the reasons he likes walking is that he dreams while he walks. His mind wanders, literally, yeah. figuratively, and he tries to capture that feeling of waking, dreaming. So when you're reading the book, from sentence to sentence, you can't be sure if what you're being told is physically present or not. Luke, would you read us a bit?
2: Yeah. So I, I, this bit I picked... Werner Herzog so read it himself... So I thought it probably had some significance to him, which why he picked it uh, on a, a very interesting documentary where the writer Robert Pogue Harrison interviews him kind of about J.A. Baker's The Peregrine, which I think this book has a lot of kinship with.
0: One of his favourite, favourite books. It is, yeah, yeah. I don't even want to know what the J.A. stand for. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel such a kinship with this man.
2: It is slowly getting lighter, but still a dampness in the air, the landscape gloomy and grey. In chassis, a truck sucks milk from cans into its tanks. A great lucid decisiveness about my fate surged up inside me. I shall reach the river Marne today. Sir is dying away, abandoned houses. A big tree has fallen across a roof a long time ago. Jackdaws inhabit the village. Two horses are feeding on the bark of a tree. Apples lie rotting in the wet clay soil around the trees. Nobody's harvesting them. On one of the trees, which seemed from afar like the only tree left with any leaves, apples hang in mysterious clusters close to one another. There isn't a single leaf on the wet tree, just apples, wet apples, refusing to fall. I picked one. It tasted pretty sour, but the juice in it quenched my thirst. I threw the apple core against the tree, and the apples fell like rain. When the apples had grown still again, restful on the ground, I thought to myself that no one could imagine such human loneliness. It is the loneliest day, the most isolated of all. So I went and shook the tree until it was utterly bare. In the midst of the stillness, the apples pummeled the ground. When it was over, a haunting stillness grabbed me, and I glanced around, but no one was there. I was alone at an abandoned laundry. I drank some water, but that was later. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. But the the, the way that when you read when you read those words and you, you just you're instantly there, watching Herzog do this strange ritual with the apple tree. It's just incredible.
0: And he, I mean, he goes on this journey and he appears in these towns and the, you know, he's viewed with a certain amount of suspicion, not least because he, he, he does burgle everyone's he keeps houses. He breaking into people's <laughs> houses, to st- their holiday homes to stay. And obviously looks... I mean, there's a terrible... He's always drinking milk for some reason. He gets really thirsty and then he throws the milk up. And so it's, it is about loneliness. And the thing about nature is always... It, nature is not a benign thing. It's like, you know, you're, you're mutant crocodiles. It's not stable. And it's not benign. I mean, that was that was the 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 biggest
2: thing for me yeah. with his work was this this view of nature as we are part of it. But one, one thing actually, though, I think with this book because it's it's this incredible wintry landscape, and it's and it's a, such a subversion of the Alpine ideal that we see um, in the great ecstasy of the woodcarver Steiner, the kind of beautiful landscapes he's skiing off, and it, that film came out at the same time. And we think of these German Bavarian mountainous landscapes and the border of France and Germany, has been quite picture picture postcard, um, especially perhaps in the winter. And reading the book, sort of occurred to me, and I was thinking about it this week, it's like that famous painting by Bruegel, The uh, Hunters in the Snow, snow, which you look at it, it's on Christmas cards, and it's lovely, but then you look at the picture again, and the hunters are sort of bent double depressed. Their hunting dogs are very thin. They've only killed a small fox. The water mill is frozen solid. You know, actually within this thing that is used literally on picture postcards it is there's there's starvation and 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 suffering and struggle
1: one of the herzog themes is figures in a landscape you know he likes to find a hostile terrain put people into that terrain and see what happens it could be an urban terrain or a, or a jungle or or what have you and um This is a clip from the documentary Burden of Dreams, which is about the making of Herzog's film Fitzcarraldo, which was made in the Peruvian jungle in the rainforest in the early 1980s. And near the end of the film, this happens.
4: It's an unfinished country. It's still prehistorical. The only thing that is lacking is, is the dinosaurs here. It's like a curse weighing on an entire landscape and whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse so we are cursed with what we are doing here it's a land that god if he exists has has created in anger it's the only land where where creation is unfinished yet taking a close look at at what's around us there there is some sort of a harmony it is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder and we in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle uh, we in comparison to that enormous articulation we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban Novel, a cheap novel. But when I say this, I say this all full of admiration for the Changi. It is not that I hate it. I love it. I love it very much. But I love it against my better judgment.
1: Enjoy your festival. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, I love. I absolutely.
2: I love that bit. And I quote from it in Out of the Woods because for me it was. It was it became this sort of little mantra I had in my head going through the forest. Because, you know, what Werner Herzl was brilliant at doing with nature is that like, you don't have to go to the jungle to see this, um, uh, the the fornication murder and rotting away, he says elsewhere in that, in that quote. It's in this woodland we're in now. You know, and he's brilliant at doing that, taking these places as ciphers for all of nature. And the film, you know, I watched the, again the other day is Grizzly Man, um, which is one of his, again, one of his later works where... There was this guy, Timothy Treadwell, who was living in Alaska hanging out with grizzly bears uh, and shooting all this tons and tons of hours and hours of footage of these bears, which he thought he was trying, he was protecting from terrible humans who were poaching them, even though there wasn't any poachers in that area. And Herzog edited together a documentary using that footage, but also interviews with uh, Treadwell's uh, friends and people who knew him, because he actually ended up getting eaten by a bear, killed and eaten by a bear, as did his girlfriend who seemed to have been dragged to the, the Alaskan wilds against her will. And, and there's, it, it's a fascinating film now because Tim, Treadwell is just the least sympathetic character. He's an absolute idiot. He's just obsessed with these bears. He has these cutesy chats about them and with them, you know, and he's there going up right up to massive great bears. And, you know, obviously that didn't go very well. And you're kind of like, why didn't the bears eat him earlier? I mean, this an absolute prick. He, he's 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 really 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 irritating character if you created him in a work of fiction would, he would be unbelievable you would you couldn't conceive of somebody so utterly annoying and apparently he would be find out there's, there's this incredible sense of why he ended up as he did and apparently he lost out on a role in cheers to woody harrelson and that sent him on a spiral into addiction uh, and all that which is which is just it's a remarkable story um but that has this sort of, you know, that the, the Timothy Treadwell is that archetypal man adventurer thinking he can go into the wilderness and connect with it uh, and he can connect with the bears. Um, and there's a great quote from Herzog um, in the end because he there, there was um, a final bit of not footage because the lens cover was on when Timothy Treadwell and his partner were eaten, killed and eaten by the bears. And you see not Herzog's face as he's listening to it, but... Treadwell's friend, the camera's filming her face and she's just desperately looking for what Herzog's reaction is. And it's just, that's an incredible, clever shot. But the way it ends, when he's talking about um, the bear, um, Treadwell and his relationship with the bears, he says, and what haunts me is that in all the faces of all the bears that Treadwell ever filmed, I discover no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature. To me, there is no such thing as a secret world of the bears. And this blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. But for Timothy Treadwell, this bear was a friend and a savior. And, and I love that he has this sort of respect for Timothy Treadwell. I think yeah. in, and as a filmmaker as well, I mean, the, yeah. the footage is, is, is shocking. Well. He was an accidental uh, filmmaking marvel, really.
1: Grizzly Man is also very interesting. as in a, in a sense, that film is Herzog's greatest hits because it's a film about Werner Herzog. The idea that you would go and do something and push yourself and others beyond the boundary of acceptable behaviour to get what you want from the, from the end product. That's a very Herzog thing about how Herzog makes his films. Also, I, I re-watched Grizzly Man, Luke, and one of the things that struck me about the film and how he frames that material is actually, fascinatingly, I think you can read it as a film about America. It's a Mm. film about what what it is to be American, how you are expected to thrive in an environment and be the best and live your dreams. And what you actually see is Treadwell presented to you as this American ideal... And he, when he was talking to the camera, I was thinking, who does this guy remind me of? Oh, yeah, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. It's like seeing that guy who has really inhaled... Dodgy hair. ..everything, and, and then is trying to expel it in a way that is going to work for him, regardless of the cost to anyone else. It's right? He
2: reminded me of Julian Assange, was the person yeah. I yeah. got. Maybe yeah. it's just people we want to see eaten by bears, I don't know. But-
0: <laughs> He's he's very good, though. He says that these people who are on the edge of things, he said, but, you know, they're not freaks to him. They're aspects of ourselves. He says, if you're a scientist and you want to find out about the inner structure of some matter, you will put it under extreme pressure and under extreme circumstances. People under extreme pressure give you much more insight about what we are, about our very innermost being. And I, I, I think... That's the sort of the Herzog experiment, the kinship between all the crazy characters, the good and the bad. I mean,
2: and then that also extends to his, his fiction, I think, because there's, there's a scene in Grizzly Man where Timothy Treadwell sets up the camera with this beautiful landscape behind him, and he, he's doing his little end-of-season report, but he just goes on a demented rant against the park service, and Herzog turns the, the volume down uh, because it was it's, it's very individual attacks. And he says, I have seen this madness on film sets before. And then you instantly think of Klaus Kinski uh, in My Best Fiend and the, the deranged rants with, which Kinski used to deliver at kind of everybody
1: in the crew. Uh, Herzog says he always takes two books onto a film set. Do you know what those two books are? Yeah. They're Livy's Second Punic Wars <laughs> because you need to be a general and Luther's translation of the Bible because you need the book of Job to hand. (laughs) Uh, And we've got a clip here. One of the things about Of Walking in Ice is I don't think a writer-writer would have written this book. Mm. I think it has a way of processing images and then relating them to the reader, which is filmic. But not only filmic is particular to Herzog's way of making films. So you can, I, you, I almost feel if you read this book and you didn't know who it was by, you'd think, wow, this is this is reminiscent of Werner Herzog, right? Except right, on yeah. the page. But also he's a very he's very bookish. And so we have a clip now of Herzog talking about the importance of reading.
3: Uh, film students they do read a book about editing, but nobody has read. Uh, let's say, um, books or uh, dramas of uh, Greek antiquity or God knows what, and I keep saying to them, you have to read. Read, 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 read. If you do not read, you will become a a mediocre filmmaker at best, but you will never make a real good film. I see hardly any films. I see three, four films a year but I do read. Of course, I have, I've written myself uh, prose and some poetry, and I am fairly certain that uh, my written work will outlive my films, because it, uh, the substance of, uh, of books uh, has nothing in between. Uh, you see, when you make a film, you have uh, cameras and production money and. Actors, psychology, um, a, a lab, or a post-production editing—you just name it. Many, many layers of very vulnerable ele- elements. And when when you write, you just write, and there's nothing else. It's a direct form, a completely direct form of
2: uh, of expressing something. He's really obsessed as well with with language and preserving language and the way words work and um something that comes up quite often in interviews and in his writing is is his concern for disappearing languages and he said at one point tree huggers and whale huggers are embraced in their weirdness but no one cares about the last speakers of a language nice. um and i and i think the he i think partly it's because of his he, he grew up speaking a, his his father spoke a bavarian dialect yes. um and he had to, his mother would translate uh, for him. And I think he's obviously grew up with this, this sort of intense fascination with he, how language works.
0: He was also very sick when he was a child. In fact, I, there was a connection that I'd, I hadn't made with uh, an English writer who's similarly kind of self-taught, Alan Garner, who had a similar problem where he was a, a kid and was, because he was a kid, he had to make stories. He, it was an amazing essay by Garner called The Edge of the Ceiling. Uh, where he populates the ceiling with an imaginary world. And the same, very similar story that Herzog tells about being wrapped in a blanket and finding a thread mm-hmm. and creating a whole kind of series of stories about this thread. Um, but so that's that thing time and time again you come back to is he trusts himself, he trusts his own judgment. There's a little, just a little bit from the book about words and their meanings. As I walk, the word millet, which I've always liked so much, just won't leave my mind. The word lusty as well. Finding a connection between the two words becomes torture. (laughs) To walk lustily works, to reap millet with a sickle also works, but millet and lusty together doesn't work. (laughs) A dense woodland unfailingly comes to pass. Atop the peak of a mountain pass, two trucks converge, the cockpits coming so close that one driver can climb over to the other one without touching the ground. Together, Never speaking a word to each other, they eat their lunch. They've been doing this for 12 years, always on the same route, always at the same place. The words are exhausted, but the food can be bought. The forest slowly ends here, the fierce hills too. For many, many miles, uninhabited woods sprawl all around. Woods which served as battlegrounds in the First and Second World Wars. The countryside becomes more open and spacious. An irresolute rain drizzles down, staying at a rate where it doesn't matter much. My output of sweat is prodigious (laughs) as I march lustily thinking of millet. (laughs) Everything's grey on grey. Cows loom. I encountered a provisional enclosure for sheep. The sheep freezing and confused, looking at me and cuddling against me as if I could offer a solution. The solution. I've never seen such expressions of trust as I found on the faces of those sheep in the snow, sheep, good, chicken, bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's so interesting. I mean, the thing about Herzog as well is he's, he's developed that thing like actually like I was thinking of Alfred Hitchcock, where he's become a figure in popular culture, partly yeah. through yeah. turning himself into a caricature of himself when he needs to. So he's, he's the only voice you hear in the new Star Wars trailer, which went crazy last week. Uh, he's appeared in Simpsons uh, Simpsons, American and Family Dad. Guy, American, all those things. But also, it, this use of music we were talking about earlier. Now, there is no actual prize, but who can tell me what album, what very famous album this piece of music comes from? <laughs>
2: got their hand up. That's it's a Kate Bush album. A Kate Bush album. It is album. a Kate
1: Bush album. A round of applause for that gentleman. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that is actually uh, Zincaro by the vocal assembly,
1: ensemble, Gord, 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 Gordela. Gordela. It's and, and it's from Nosferatu. It is. It's from side two of the, it's from the ninth wave, side two of Hounds of Love. It's from the track Hello uh, Earth. And what happened was Kate Bush was watching Nosferatu the Vampire and she heard a bit of choral music and she thought, oh, that'll work. So what she did in the Kate Bush style was she went to huge time, trouble and expense to notate it, score it, re-record it so it sounded exactly like it does on the soundtrack for Nosferatu and it still wasn't good enough so they just used it off Nosferatu. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think thinking about Herzog and music uh,
2: and his cultural context in Germany is really interesting. Like Andy's wearing his uh, Kraftwerk autobahn T-shirt, and those groups. I mean, I also sort of got into Werner Herzog films when I was first discovering people like Can and Kraftwerk, and those those artists, the musicians, will talk about how they they came up with this sort of. Um, Visionary sound because they had no culture. Their culture was the Second World War. Their parents were complicit yeah. in Nazism, so they really had to build everything up from from the from nothing. And I think Herzog's films exactly fit that tradition, which is why it's so interesting he worked with Popovu because they were very much one of those those groups. It was this creation of a new a new narrative and a new truth for them as German artists. And I I sort of feel that that's what Herzog was doing so he was he was very much alive you know he was alive in 1940 he, he remembered the war uh, you know and and the he very much grew in the post-war period of rationing and so on
0: yeah he, he once said there was a that he envied his friends who, who because he was they was he was taken out another great herzog story his mother found him under thick layer of shards of glass and brick so they decided to move out to the countryside but he was always envious of his friends who'd stayed and, and played in the ruins there were no fathers Nobody to tell, to tell them what to do.
1: One thing I want to say about of Walking in Ice is it's frequently very funny. Yeah. Irony or no irony. Uh, and there's a scene uh, which I will edit on the fly, which, if it happened on Friday, the 6th of December, 1974, I'll eat my shoe. Is this the Kodak? Uh, I, I just, I feel there <laughs> may be some ecstatic truth at work here. <laughs> Before going to sleep, I took a stroll into town on my still sizzling soles. There was a procession with brass bands, cherry bombs, and little girls marching in parade, plus parents, children, and behind them all, a float being towed by a tractor. On top of the float, which was surrounded by torch bearing members of the volunteer fire brigade, Santa Claus stood, tossing candy from a cardboard box among the children who flew after it with such abandon that a couple of boys, diving headlong for some sweets that had been flung too far, crashed hard against a closed door. Santa himself looked so moonstruck that I almost suffered a stroke. When he appeared with his sunglasses up on the balcony, I was completely (laughs) convulsed by a paroxysm of laughter. A few people gave me strange looks and I retreated to the bistro, While eating my sandwich, I ate one end of my scarf as well. (laughs) Which which cracked me up so much inside that the whole table started to shake, though outwardly my face gave no signs of laughter. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says at the end, this is this is tomorrow I'll make myself switch roadsides now and then. As long as I walk crisscross, I didn't notice a thing. The souls burn from the red-hot core in the Earth's interior. The loneliness is deeper than usual today. I'm developing a dialogical rapport with myself. <laughs> and in a sense, that's what the book is. It's Herxog walking for a month, talking to himself, yeah. th- uh, coherently, incoherently, in and out of the dream state, it's, we always say this on Backlisted when it's true. And in this case, it is true rather than the ecstatic truth, it's the actual truth. This isn't like any other book. No. Most books are like other books, but this one isn't. And that in itself is it's, a reason for reading it.
0: It's like a kind of trippy fairy tale. I mean, it is. Mm. It's, um, the good news is also, Lottie Eisner didn't die. She lived for another two years. But that, went, she wasn't but even that's, ill. But that <laughs> story is remarkable, isn't yeah. it? We, but the, one, but the one where she has to ask him for permission to, to die. die. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, she's, when she's actually dying. She yep. felt that she was being held back by some strange force. <laughs> so she asked Herzog to release her.
2: <laughs> and he's very matter-of-fact about it. You know, she couldn't watch films anymore, she couldn't read, she was <laughs> suffering, and she said, Werner, you've put this curse of life on me. And, uh, and, she, and he says, sort of, almost quite pleased with himself, she died 14 days later. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, it's worth saying that the, the book that Luke is holding If You Want More Herzog that is an absolutely I mean I think one of the great collections of interviews with, a, with, a, with an artist it's, in, it's incredible Can I, have we got time
2: for one bit which go, kind of go. goes to the fundamental core
0: go. of Herzog um, so
2: he gets asked is, is Herzog your real name it's my father's name my parents divorced when I was five or six at which point my legal name became Stipechic which was my mother's maiden name I always felt much closer to my mother, but chose to work under the name Herzog, in part because it means Duke in German. I thought there should be someone like Count Basie or Duke Ellington making films. (laughs) It is hostile and murderous out there in the universe. What looks friendly to us is actually 200,000 atomic explosions every second. The sun is a tiny grain of sand, and there are many even nastier suns out there. Down here, we humans are living proof that things have gone warped. Perhaps changing my name has somehow protected me from the overwhelming evil of the universe. Which is magnificent. I only asked him what his real name was.
4: (laughs)
0: So, unfortunately, that's where we must rest and pause on our journey into a dark and essentially unforgiving universe. Um, Thank you to Luke for a brilliant choice of book. Thank you. Thank you to Nikki for always making us sound better than we actually are. Thank you to Unbound for putting up the cash. And thank you to all of you for coming and making such a lot of noise. It's been amazing. And you can download all 100 episodes of Batlisted. There's
1: 100 hours of this shit. It's unbelievable, A it? 100 <laughs> hours of me and Mitch going, extraordinary. Isn't uh, <laughs> uh, would you call him, I think he's a
0: master storyteller. A master, master storyteller. Hey, <laughs>
1: <Hooray>! master storyteller. <laughs> We'd also like to thank, because we've just passed 100 episodes, we'd like to thank all the guests uh, over the last few years who've been brilliant. We'd like to thank our listeners who have taken us over a million listens. Thank you so much. We're tremendously grateful. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight where I think the book we're going to be talking about is The Soul of Kindness by Elizabeth Taylor. The writer, not the actress. Uh, And... um, we will be joined by returning guests, Karma Khalil and Rachel Cook. So join us then. And you we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless.
0: Be careful out there.
1: <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. choose to listen to backlisted with or without adverts if you prefer to listen to it without adverts you can join us on our patreon patreon patreon.com forward slash backlisted where you also get bonus content of two episodes of locklisted the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks